Thank you for standing by, and welcome to the Health Catalyst Earnings Conference Call for the first quarter of 2021. At this time, all participants are on a listen-only mode. After the speaker's presentations, there will be a question and answer session. To ask a question at that time, please press star then one on your touchstone telephone. As a reminder, today's conference call is being recorded. I will now turn the conference over to your host, Mr. Adam Brown. So you may begin. Good afternoon, and welcome to Health Catalyst Earnings Conference Call for the first quarter of 2021, which ended on March 31st, 2021. My name is Adam Brown. I'm the Senior Vice President of Investor Relations and Financial Planning and Analysis for Health Catalyst. And with me on the call is Dan Burton, our Chief Executive Officer, and Brian Hunt, our Chief Financial Officer. A complete disclosure of our results can be found in our press release issued today, as well as in our related Form 8K furnished to the SEC, both of which are available on the Investor Relations section of our website at ir.healthcatalyst.com. As a reminder, today's call is being recorded, and a replay will be available following the conclusion of the call. During the call, we will make forward-looking statements pursuant to the safe harbor provisions of the Private Securities Litigation Reform Act of 1995 regarding trends, strategies, the impact of the COVID-19 pandemic on our business and results of operations, our pipeline conversion rates, and our general anticipated performance of the business. These forward-looking statements are based on management's current views and expectations as of today and should not be relied upon as representing our views as of any subsequent date. We disclaim any obligation to update any forward-looking statements or outlook. Actual results may materially differ. Please refer to the risk factors in our Form 10-K for 2020 filed with the SEC on February 25, 2021, and our Form 10-Q for the first quarter of 2021 that will be filed with the SEC. We will also refer to certain non-GAAP financial measures to provide additional information to investors. A reconciliation of these non-GAAP measures to their most comparable GAAP measures is provided in our press release. With that, let me turn the call over to Dan for his prepared remarks, and then Brian will subsequently provide his prepared remarks. Dan and Brian will then take your questions. Dan? Thank you, Adam, and thank you to everyone who has joined us this afternoon. We're excited to share our first quarter 2021 financial performance, along with additional highlights from the quarter. I will begin today's call with some commentary on our first quarter 2021 financial results by sharing that we are pleased with the company's overall financial performance. Our Q1 2021 total revenue was $55.8 million, and our adjusted EBITDA was a loss of $0.8 million. with these results exceeding the midpoint of our quarterly guidance on each metric. Additionally, our Q1 2021 technology revenue was $33.8 million, which represents 37% growth year-over-year, year. and our Q1 2021 total adjusted gross margin was 54.3%, representing an increase of 540 basis points year-over-year. Year. Now let me highlight some additional items from the quarter. You will recall from our previous earnings calls that we measure our company's performance in the three strategic objective categories of improvement, growth, and scale. And we'll discuss our quarterly results with you in each of these categories. 
The first category, improvement, is focused on evaluating our ability to enable our clients to realize massive, measurable improvements while also maintaining industry-leading client and team member satisfaction and engagement. Let me share a few examples of client improvements from recently published case studies. The first improvement vignette highlights our work with one of our clients supporting their journey to financial and operational recovery from COVID-19, while the latter two vignettes highlight clients leveraging our technology and services to do meaningful improvement work outside of their COVID-19 response. First, Carl Health employed our software, including the DOS data platform and our new healthcare.ai solution to apply advanced data science and analytics to their COVID-19 capacity planning. Our technology enabled our colleagues at Carl to forecast census and related bed staffing and supply needs at the level of patient acuity, which provided the ability in real time to anticipate and meet the demand for facility, supply, and human resources required to care for COVID-19 patients across Carl's community. Next, Thibodeau Regional Health System leveraged our solution to employ a data-informed approach to meaningfully improve care delivery and achieve reduced costs. Our software enabled our colleagues at Thibodeau to significantly reduce their patients' stroke, pneumonia, and sepsis mortality rates, in addition to decreasing length of stay, the incidence of complications for patients undergoing joint replacement surgery, and the use of blood products. As a result, Thibodeau has achieved over $6.6 million in financial improvements while also improving health outcomes for thousands of its patients across multiple service lines. Finally, Hospital Sisters Health System utilized our solution, including the DOS platform and our quality and regulatory measures analytics software, to integrate claims and clinical data from disparate EMRs across its ACO. This real-time integrated quality data and analytics enabled Hospital Sisters Health System to improve their ACO quality measures performance across 11 measures in a single year, close care gaps, and enhance reporting accuracy and effectiveness. Moreover, Hospital Sisters Health System gained an additional $1 million in Medicare Shared Savings Program revenue, and they achieved 320000 in cost savings, the result of eliminating a third-party quality reporting software vendor. Also within the improvement category, I'd like to highlight our team member engagement. Approximately every six months, we utilize the Gallup organization to measure our team members' engagement levels. In our most recent results, we achieved an overall team member satisfaction score in the 96th percentile. This latest engagement level continues a pattern that has been in place for many years of industry-leading team member engagement consistently ranking between the 95th and 99th percentile in overall team member satisfaction scores. This latest result is of particular significance given that it comes during a period where we were required to adapt to a global pandemic necessitating a remote-only work environment. 
as well as having welcomed nearly 200 new teammates who came to us primarily through multiple recent acquisitions. We as a leadership team continue to maintain a primary prioritized focus on team member engagement, the center of our strategic flywheel, because we recognize the central and foundational contributions that our team members make in building and then utilizing the software that enables our clients to achieve massive, measurable improvement. These Gallup results, coupled with our clients' high satisfaction levels throughout the pandemic, are heartening confirmation of our prioritization and focus. On a similar note, I would highlight that we have been fortunate to receive multiple other external recognitions related to team member engagement, including the company's fourth recognition as a Glassdoor Best Place to Work, in addition to inclusion in Fortune's Best Place to Work in Technology list, the Women Tech Council's Shatter list, and in her sites, Best Information Technology and Services Companies to Work For list. We were also thrilled that two of our team members were recently recognized as 2021 Black Engineer of the Year Science Spectrum Trailblazer Award winners. Lastly, in the improvement category, I would like to highlight our recent announcement that the company achieved certification for information security by HITRUST. HITRUST leverages nationally and internationally accepted standards to ensure a comprehensive portfolio of security controls. As trusted stewards of our clients' data, we take information security and data privacy very seriously, as we recognize that they are central to the success of our clients and our mission. And this announcement highlights our ongoing commitment to implementing best practice standards for protecting data confidentiality, integrity, and availability. Our next strategic objective category is growth, which includes beginning new client relationships while also expanding existing client relationships. To begin, I would comment that our current operating environment is consistent with commentary that we shared on our Q4 2020 earnings call. The COVID-19 pandemic continues to result in both headwinds and tailwinds as it relates to our growth. And as such, we are reiterating the 2021 bookings expectations that we shared on our Q4 2020 earnings call. In terms of headwinds, we anticipate our provider end market will continue to be under some amount of operational and financial strain over the coming months as healthcare organizations deal with the continued COVID-19 surge alongside the vaccine rollout logistics. And as it relates to tailwinds, we continue to see meaningful evidence that the healthcare provider ecosystem is better equipped and prepared to respond to the ongoing pandemic in areas including treatment efficacy, supply chain logistics, capacity planning, and broader operational optimization. Likewise, we're encouraged by the pace of the vaccine rollout efforts. And lastly, we continue to believe that the COVID pandemic will serve as an overall tailwind in the industry's adoption of data and analytics, significantly highlighting the need for a commercial-grade data and analytics solution to replace patchwork homegrown systems. Lastly, on the topic of growth, I would share that consistent with previous commentary, we continue to believe that we have a meaningful consolidation opportunity 
especially at the applications layer of our solution stack. We currently have greater than $265 million of cash and short-term investments on our balance sheet, a meaningful portion of which is available for acquisitions. And while the pace of our acquisition efforts will always be driven by the quality of opportunity set, we continue to be encouraged by a high-quality acquisition pipeline. And we believe that the COVID-19 pandemic has brought certain opportunities to the forefront that may not have presented themselves otherwise. Finally, I will make a couple of comments related to our board of directors. Dr. Tim Ferriss, who has served on our board since January of 2018, and most recently as its chair, has concluded his service on the board, effective May 1st, 2021. England's National Health Service required Dr. Ferris to resign from our board in connection with his appointment as NHS's National Director of Transformation. We are extremely grateful for the opportunity to have benefited from Dr. Ferris's wisdom and experience for many years, and we wish him well in his exciting future role with the NHS. In Dr. Ferris's place, we are thrilled to announce that Jack Kane has accepted the invitation to serve as chair of our board of directors, effective May 1st, 2021. Jack has served on our board since 2016, including several years as audit committee chair. Jack has more than 30 years of experience in healthcare technology, including as a public company CFO, and currently serves on the board of directors of several companies. We are grateful for Jack's dedication to our mission over many years, as well as his depth of financial leadership experience in healthcare and in technology. He is uniquely qualified to serve as our chair moving forward. With that, let me turn the call over to Brian. Brian? Thank you, Dan. Before diving into our quarterly financial results, I want to echo Dan's sentiment and say that I am pleased with our first quarter 2021 results. I will now comment on our strategic objective category of scale. For the first quarter of 2021, we generated $55.8 million in total revenue. As Dan mentioned, this represents an outperformance relative to the midpoint of our guidance, and it represents an increase of 24% year-over-year. Technology revenue for Q1 2021 was $33.8 million representing 37% growth year-over-year. This year-over-year growth was driven primarily by recurring revenue from new client additions, from existing clients paying higher technology access fees as a result of contractual built-in escalators, and from our VitaWare acquisition. Professional services revenue for Q1 2021 was $22 million representing 8% growth relative to the same period last year. This performance is primarily due to our professional services being provided to new DOS subscription customers, partially offset by lower professional services dollar-based retention achieved in 2020 relative to historical performance as a result of the COVID pandemic. Total adjusted gross margin for the first quarter 2021 was 54.3%, representing an increase of approximately 540 basis points year-over-year. In the technology segment, our Q1 2021 adjusted technology gross margin was 69.1%, 
an increase of approximately 40 basis points relative to the same period last year. This year-over-year performance was mainly driven by existing clients paying higher technology access fees from contractual built-in escalators without a commensurate increase in hosting costs, offset partially by headwinds due to the continued costs associated with transitioning a portion of our client base to third-party cloud-hosted data centers in Microsoft Azure. In the professional services segment, our Q1 2021 adjusted professional services gross margin was 31.5%, representing an increase of approximately 660 basis points year-over-year and an increase of approximately 410 basis points relative to Q4 2020. This year-over-year performance was mainly the result of some shift in the mix of professional services delivered and a slightly higher utilization rate than forecasted. In Q1 2021, adjusted total operating expenses were $31.2 million. As a percentage of revenue, adjusted total operating expenses were 56%, which compares favorably to 62% in Q1 2020. Adjusted EBITDA in Q1 2021 was a loss of $0.8 million, exceeding the midpoint of our guidance and comparing favorably to an adjusted EBITDA loss of $6 million in the first quarter of 2020. This Q1 adjusted EBITDA result was mainly driven by the strong revenue and gross margin performance mentioned previously. Additionally, it was partially driven by some non-headcount expenses that we anticipate will be pushed out into subsequent quarters in 2021. Our adjusted net loss per share in Q1 2021 was six cents. The weighted average number of shares used in calculating adjusted net loss per share in Q1 was approximately 43.9 million shares. Lastly, as it relates to our GAAP income statement, let me share an update on some of the areas of year-over-year increase. First, I would note that our Q1 2021 depreciation and amortization expense increased by $4.9 million year-over-year, primarily due to the amortization of acquired intangible assets resulting from our 2020 business combinations. Next, you will see that our Q1 2021 stock-based compensation expense increased by $4.8 million year-over-year. In addition to expense associated with incremental RSU grants and performance-based RSU grants, this increase is also the result of restricted shares issued and revested as part of acquisition consideration from our 2020 acquisitions of Able Health and VitalWare, and this revesting is classified as stock-based compensation expense. Turning to the balance sheet, we ended the first quarter of 2021 with $266 million of cash, cash equivalents, and short-term investments, compared to $271 million at year-end 2020. As a reminder, in April 2020, we issued a private placement of convertible notes with a principal amount of $230 million, and we used a portion of the proceeds to extinguish an outstanding term loan. After deducting the unamortized debt discount related to the conversion feature of $53.6 million and unamortized issuance cost of $4.5 million, 
as of March 31, 2021, the net carrying amount of the liability component of the convertible notes is $171.9 million. As it relates to our financial guidance for the second quarter of 2021, we expect total revenue between $55.1 million and $58.1 million, and adjusted EBITDA losses between $4.8 million and $2.8 million. And for the full year 2021, we expect total revenue between $228.1 million and $231.1 million. At their respective midpoints, this represents an increase of $3 million compared to the full-year revenue guidance we provided last quarter. We also expect adjusted EBITDA losses between $15 million and $13 million. At their respective midpoints, this represents an improvement of $0.75 million compared to the full-year guidance we provided last quarter. Lastly, I will provide a few additional details related to our guidance and 2021 forecast. First, we anticipate our Q2 2021 professional services revenue will be roughly flat to Q1 2021. As a reminder, Q2 2021 professional services year-over-year growth will result in a more favorable comparison relative to the other quarters in 2021. Given that in Q2 2020, we offered a subset of our clients temporary professional services discounts, helping to support them through the acute COVID-19-related financial strain. Next, I would mention that we continue to anticipate our overall adjusted professional services gross margin percentage will be in the 20s for the full year 2021. Driven by our forecasted mix of services utilized and our forecasted utilization rate. And lastly, I would like to provide a reminder that we do typically experience seasonality in our operating expenses. The increase in our operating expenses that we anticipate for the remainder of the year are mainly driven by non-headcount expenses, including our healthcare analytics summit, the acquisition-related integration expense that we described on our Q4 2020 earnings call, as well as continued strategic investment in our growth and research and development functions, consistent with previous commentary. With that, I'll conclude my prepared remarks. Dan? Thanks, Brian. I will conclude my commentary by thanking our highly engaged team members. I'm grateful to these teammates for their central contributions to our mission and growth. And with that, I will turn the call back to the operator for questions. Thank you. And as a reminder, to ask a question, press star 1 on your telephone keypad. To withdraw your question, press the pound key. Please stand by while we compile the Q&A roster. Our first question is from Robert Jones with Goldman Sachs. Your question, please. Great. Thanks for taking my questions. This is Jack Rogoff on for Bob. So would you be able to describe specifically what in professional services mix was better in the quarter? And if I heard you correctly, it sounds like you expect some of that mix to revert. So could you talk about how what transpired within professional services in the quarter impacts how you do the balance of the year? Yep, absolutely. 
So in terms of our Q1 professional services performance, we did see um, a bit of an uptick in terms of the mix of services uh, offered that are some of our higher margin professional services. So as a reminder, we have um, three main components of professional services offerings. One is our implementation services. One is our data and analytics consulting services. And the third is our outsource services. Uh, data analytics and then our, in line with that, our, our domain expert services are the higher margin professional services that we offer. And we did see a bit of an uptick towards those in Q1. Um, that was also related to uh, actually some, some additional non-recurring or project-based work um, along those lines in Q1 as well. And that's why you did see a bit of an uptick in that gross margin and in our utilization rate um, in Q1. And then looking ahead, uh, based on the pipeline of services that we have visibility, visibility into now, we do expect, um, one, our utilization rate to normalize a little bit more throughout the remainder of the year. And then, two, that that mix of services would shift slightly more to those lower margin um, relative professional services offerings throughout 2021. Understood. Thanks so much. Thank Thanks, you. Jack. Thank you. Our next question comes from Ann Samuel with J.P. Morgan. Hi, thanks so much for taking the question. Um, maybe for the second quarter, you know, with the flat professional services growth, that actually implies some really nice organic technology growth for the second quarter. So just wondering if there's anything incremental in there um, or maybe any, you know, optimism that you're seeing that, that might be leading to that. Yeah, hey, Annie, thank you. Um, so to your point, we do, um, consistent with what we've shared um, in our prior earnings calls as well, we do expect uh, continued robust technology growth for the full year 2021. And we shared um, on our Q4 call that um, our annual uh, 2021 technology growth, growth rate would look similar directionally to what you saw in 2020, which was approximately 30% growth. Um, and so to your point, we do expect um, uh, on a sequential basis technology to continue to tick up slightly um, quarter over quarter by a few percentage points although there can be a little bit of um, in-quarter variation on that exact number based on um, a few factors like the timing of go-lives and implementation dates and the like. Okay, helpful. Thank you. Um, and then maybe just one on the macro environment. You know, we've been hearing a lot about the macro backdrop being more favorable for value-based care. Um, just wondering what you're seeing um, around appetite for that. Thanks. Yes. So generally speaking, uh, we are seeing more discussions, Annie, as it relates to population health and value-based care coming back as a higher proportion of the conversations that we're having both with new clients and with existing clients relative to where they've been over the last 15 months where COVID-specific activity had really dominated. Uh, so that is something that we're seeing as well as is an uptick in those kinds of conversations. Great. Thanks very much. Thank you. Our next question comes from Ryan Daniels with William Blair. Your question, please. Yeah, thanks for taking the questions. Congrats on a strong start to the year. I wanted to do a follow-up there on the kind of population health or value-based care front. Dan, the vignettes you provided are always very helpful. And I wanted to focus on the one where you worked with an ACO on quality reporting and um, 
improvement in the practices and, and drove the million plus in savings. Is that something that you think is transferable, you know, to payers and to large provider groups, thinking large physician groups or advanced medical practices as well, because we're seeing them, you know, more and more enter the space, whether it's through Medicare Advantage or taking MA attributed lives or even direct contracting. So I'm curious what your thoughts are about that market opening up for, for your kind of commercial-grade analytic solutions. Yes, thanks for the question, Ryan. We have uh, been focused on strengthening our overall value proposition as it relates to measures in particular, and and many organizations have specific requirements, and those measures often relate directly to, you know, other really important aspects of operational performance and financial performance. And so we would see that this uh, capability that HSHS was able to, to leverage our solution and produce is applicable in the payer space and in different sub-segments of the payer space as well. So we are excited about um, uh, the, the potential of others uh, utilizing that kind of a solution and, and yielding similar benefits. The only thing I would add, Ryan, is, um, as you know, so the vast majority of our current customer base is on the more traditional provider side, but we do have some segment, some portion of our customer base that is in those verticals that you described and what Dan, Dan described along the spectrum of risk-bearing entities, ACOs, uh, and the like, and do think our platform and our population health applications um, have relevance there. Okay, super helpful. And then one quick follow-up just on the margin front, and I'm thinking longer term in nature, you know, if we look at the different portions of your services offering, is it fair to think that the data analytics over time, you know, could increase as a portion of that services revenue with you having a, a broader offering and constantly introducing new use cases? Um, just how should we think about that, again, longer term, not, not talking this year, but maybe over the next three to five years, how might that skew? Thanks. It's a good question, Ryan, and I would share that we feel like we're in learn mode, especially during the COVID pandemic where we're just trying to learn and observe. And we want to, I think, take the rest of this year to better understand uh, what we're observing in the professional services space. Uh, I think pre-COVID, we would share a perspective that it was, it was not atypical at all to see different parts of those three components of our service ramp up or ramp down in any given quarter based on the kind of improvement work that we were doing. We've seen some other changes that have occurred over the last 15 months, and we're trying to pay attention to signal and noise as we get through the pandemic. And, and so we'll likely keep observing before making any uh, specific observations, but then use the planning cycle each year as another opportunity to step back, consider if we've seen any, any more macro changes uh, that, that would be of note. And if we do observe any, uh, we would share those, you know, following the planning process uh, probably early next year. One other thing I would add, Ryan, just, just in terms of our uh, long-term professional services gross margin target, that, that is in the mid-30s, um, as we've stated. And so that, that margin would reflect essentially that mix of those services that I described and data and analytics and other consulting services are a, are, are a, large, a good portion of that. Thank you again. Thanks, Ryan. Our next question comes from Sean Whelan with Piper Sandler. Your question, please. Hi. Thanks very much. Um, 
you called out um, uh, a greater amount of non-recurring services uh, in the quarter. Could you quantify that and maybe um, uh, tell us a little bit more about what that was? Yes, Sean, I'll make a comment, and then, Brian, please feel free to add as well. So I would characterize, Sean, that um, the, the increase in non-recurring uh, revenue-oriented services is one of those elements that we've seen recently uh, during the midst of the pandemic that a number of clients have been interested in those kinds of projects. That's something where we don't feel ready to make any pronouncements yet about a longer-term shift, and I'll let Brian comment on the specifics as it relates to Q1. But it is something that we're watching uh, as we progress through 2021, and we'll see if, uh, as we gather more data, there's there's anything uh, that we feel has has changed more materially or, or longer term. Brian, what would you add? Yeah, just to add on the quantification, Sean, of it. So, um, given that the vast majority of our services are still recurring, it is fairly small. You could think about it as you know, a million or so of additional non-recurring services, but fairly small portion of our overall mix currently. Okay, uh, that's good to know. Thank you. And um, just on the overall pipeline of new DOS clients, I mean, can you characterize that a little bit in terms of, um, you know, are you going to uh, uh, kind of regain momentum after uh, after a pandemic year this year? And uh, how is the, the maturity of the pipeline progressing? So overall, we would continue to characterize the pipeline the way that we have been that it, it uh, behaves a lot like pre-pandemic levels, uh, and that is the result of headwinds and tailwinds that we've described previously. We continue to experience those headwinds and those tailwinds. Uh, that affects specifically the new client, uh, the new DOS subscription client pipeline as well. Uh, we do anticipate and, and uh, look forward to getting through the the pandemic, and then we do believe that those tailwinds associated with a, a sense that every health system needs a commercial-grade data platform like DOS rather than a homegrown patchwork uh, uh, infrastructure will persist beyond the pandemic, but we still observe long sales cycles of approximately one year, and so the result of, of that longer-term tailwind will take time uh, much much of that will take beyond 2021 to really show up in terms of pipeline performance. Anything, Brian, you would add? That makes sense. Thanks, Dan. Um, uh, so just remind remind me, have you given us a target for the number of DOS clients, you new DOS clients you want to add this year? We did share a, a mid-teens expectation. And so that's what we're still on track for. That's right. Super. Thanks so much. Thank you, Sean. Our next question comes from Elizabeth Anderson with Evercore. Your question, please. Hi, guys. Thanks so much for, for the question. Um, can you talk about, in terms of the demand environment, is there a difference in what, you know, new prospects or potentially even people in the pipeline are looking for or different aspects of your service that they're really interested in? Yes, thank you for the question, Elizabeth. So uh, as we mentioned a few minutes ago, we are seeing uh, more questions, more uh, interest as it relates to, to what we saw before the pandemic in terms of a lot of focus and a lot of discussion around value-based care and population health. That, that slowed down during the last 15 months where there was more of a specific focus on COVID-19 response and everything related to that. 
uh, we are seeing that uh, that topical area pick up a little bit more uh, over the last few months. Sorry. Oh, I was just going to add, Elizabeth. Um, we continue to see, um, again, focus on areas like the financial optimization, cost optimization and efficiencies, um, population health, as Dan mentioned, but then continued focus um, on uh, that robust commercial-grade solution as compared to a patchwork solution that's less flexible in an environment like this. Makes sense. Um, and did you, um, apologize if I missed this, did you size the VitalWare contribution in the quarter numerically? Yeah, we we um, we are not breaking that out in our in our filings or 10Q and did not did not comment on it in the prepared remarks. Um, we did break that out in our filings through 2020, the year of acquisition. But I, I could point you, Elizabeth, to the color as well that we provided on our last call, um, which was that for the year uh, we expected Vitalware to contribute in the low 20 millions um, in 2021 in terms of revenue. And that low 20 millions, um, as you're aware, there's a deferred revenue write down that will have an impact on that um, through Q1, Q2 in particular, and then tick up um, towards the back half of the year. So hopefully that helps you with a little bit of color on that on that level. Got it. So sorry, just to clarify, that low 20 contribution is for all four quarters of 1Q. It's not as like the um, just the first three quarters until you lap the purchase date, right? Yeah, yes, yes, for the full year 2020, all four, or 2021, all four quarters. Got it. Thank you. Thank you. Our next question comes from Stephanie Davis with SB Beer Leering. Please go ahead. Thank you for taking my question and congrats on the quarter. Thinking about the new sales process as we exit the pandemic. Could you walk us through the near-term opportunity to re-engage with clients that had to pause for cost concerns during the pandemic? And is that wallet going to bounce back pretty immediately, or do you think for some of your broader-reaching solutions, this could be more of a multi-year recovery? Yes. So we think about – thank you for the question, Stephanie. We think about the the, the growth uh, of the company in two broad categories. One is with new clients. And as we've stated previously, we certainly did um, experience, especially in the early months of the pandemic, uh, more of a pause, like you mentioned, in discussions about uh, having a new client relationship. Starting in the back half of last year, we saw that re-engagement occur, uh, but we still have a, a long sales cycle of about one year with regards to new client discussions. Now, the second category that we think of in terms of growth uh, is expansion with existing clients, and that's a typically more streamlined set of discussions and uh, can vary a, a, a lot based on what they specifically are focused on and what they'd like to expand. As we shared previously, a lot of the discussions with existing clients focused on COVID-19 response, especially the first six months of the pandemic. We started to see some of the other aspects of our portfolio of, of offerings coming back uh, starting in the latter half of, of last year, and we see that continuing forward uh, even more uh, in, in the first part of this year as well, and we anticipate that that will continue uh, to be the case moving forward. Anything you'd add, Brian? Yeah, just to, just to add, Stephanie, as well, that um, in the end market that we're selling into in healthcare, so 
Um, budget cycles tend to be sent on, set on an annual basis, and um, shifts in terms of uh, the macroeconomic environment or trends that way can tend to uh, essentially have a lag uh, as it gets reflected in updated budget cycles and then flowing into our, our sales cycle. On that same note of capital spend, is there any chance for a pickup in the professional service side that you're not factoring in just as that seems more immediate? Or is that still always going to be in lockstep with the tech sales side of the world? Yeah, it's a great question. Um, it's something that we're continuing to monitor. So um, in Q1, we did have uh, that uptick that I mentioned that uh, increased our utilization rate a little bit beyond what we had expected. Um, we are uh, wanting to continue to monitor that, um, that trend and that demand and assess over the next couple of quarters, uh, but it's something that we're, we're thinking through and we'll provide updates on. Don't mind the skew of conservativeness. All right. Thank you, guys. Thanks, Stephanie. Thank you. Our next question comes from Steve Helper with Cantor Fitzgerald. Please go ahead. Hi. Just a quick housekeeping question. You talked about a higher level of stock compensation in the quarter uh, due to the, you know, revesting, uh, you know, acquisition-related uh, stock. I I'm assuming that doesn't repeat in subsequent quarters. So is it, you know, is that a safe assumption? Yeah, thanks, Steve. Yeah, there will be um, there will be some of that that um, continues uh, through a portion of 2021, just based on the revesting schedule that's been defined from those acquisitions. Um, but to your point, we do think about that as um, essentially somewhat separate and different from the stock-based comp that's driven by uh, RSU grants, performance-based grants, um, team member retention and compensation, and the like. But that will have a little bit of a lag as it rolls through. Um, 2021. Right, but the subsequent quarters, you know, in the aggregate, does that does that does the stock comp number decline? Um, we we'd expect the stock comp number to um, to pick up slightly, just based on those those grants that I described. So um, I think it's fair to think about um, as a percentage of revenue, as an example, stock based comp could tick up by a few percentage points through the next few quarters in 2021. And then the the revesting, did, did that go into any one category, or is it spread throughout? Um, it's broken out in our in, in our filings in the form of restricted shares. Um, so I'd have to I'd have to look exactly. I think it's mostly in a single opex category, but we do break out those shares separately. Thank you. Thank you. Our next question comes from David Grossman with Stiefel. Your question, please. Uh, thank you. Uh, you know, I think this question has come up in a couple different contexts, but it, are you, are you, is there anything you can kind of explain or help us understand the patterns in your base in terms of how they may use services, utilization, and attach rates? once we get through the pandemic um, or based on the conversations you're having, you feel it's just a timing issue um, as opposed to any real changes in behavior on a longer-term basis? Yes, thank you for the question, David. So the vast, vast majority of our clients 
uh, tap into both our technology uh, at the data platform layer as well as at the applications layer, as well as uh, different components of our services. And we have a, a particular perspective about our services that they're all designed to enable our clients to be successful, to enable them to realize measurable, massive uh, improvements in the areas of most importance to them. As a result, and as we've discussed previously, we are comfortable uh, with that mix of services changing each quarter uh, based on what the needs of our clients are. And we see that different clients need different components of those three categories of services that we offer. And we're comfortable with that. And that's one of the reasons why historically you've seen some variation in terms of the, the gross margin profile of, of services in any given quarter. We're comfortable with that because we're optimizing those services to really focus on enabling our clients to be successful as the first measure of, of our success in services. And as a result, we're flexible there. Anything you'd add, Brian? Yeah, just that uh, I think to Dan's earlier point, we're continuing to learn about the long-term attachment rates, long-term kind of more normalized growth, pro growth profile in the services segment. Um, we, we have provided color at least for 2021 in terms of our professional services dollar-based retention rate that we'd expect to be up meaningfully from the mid-90s in 2020, um, although still have some pressure in, in particular in the first half of 2021 and potentially for the year on that retention rate. So at least hopefully that provides some color in terms of how we think about it this year and then how that would flow into 2022 revenue. Right. No, got it. Thanks for that. And, and assuming my math is right, it, it would imply your guidance for the year that sequentially revenue growth slows down quite a bit in the back half of the year. So it's, if that math is, is right, is that just conservatism because of the variability in services, or is there something more to it than that? Yeah, I'll comment, and then, Brian, please feel free as well. So as Brian mentioned earlier, in the first quarter, we did observe um, some increased activity as it relates to non-recurring revenue services. Uh, and because they're non-recurring in nature and project-based in nature, uh, those services come to an end later in the year. And that's um, a component of our services offering that uh, that is relatively newer in terms of its proportion uh, and client's interest. As I mentioned before, we are focused mostly on ensuring that we're offering services that are really helpful to clients and enabling them to be successful. And that's one of the reasons why during the pandemic and even as we're continuing in the pandemic in the first half, we're still watching and observing and trying to understand uh, if there are anything, uh, any patterns that might last beyond the pandemic versus those that are more specific to the pandemic. And, and we don't feel we have enough data yet uh, to, to understand how non-recurring services, as one example, might play out through the rest of the year. And so we do try to be data-informed when we think about projections for the back half of the year. What would you add, Brian? No, I, I think that was well said. Thanks, Dan. Great. All right, Dan, thank you. Thank you. Our next question comes from Daniel Crossley with Citi. Can you provide an update on cross-sales this quarter, both selling DOS clients on newly acquired solutions and, and cross-selling the DOS platform to uh, acquired clients? Yes. So in the, in the first category of selling newly acquired applications, cross-selling those uh, into our DOS 
uh, client base, we did have some success in Q1. We're still early in that process of, of sharing uh, that those expanded uh, offerings in our portfolio. But that apps layer cross-sell is typically at a lower incremental price point, and so the sales cycle is is a little bit shorter in those cases. So we have a little bit more data there, and, and we did see some success. We do assume some moderate cross-sell uh, in our forecast and in our guidance uh, at that apps layer. The second category is is selling apps layer clients on the DOS um, platform, and that's a more difficult cross-sell. It's a much larger price tag uh, to get started, and those clients that are app-only clients of newly acquired companies, for example, are used to a much lower price point. So that is uh, a category where we continue to see pipeline movement, and we're, uh, we're continuing to focus there. But given the longer sales cycle and the, the larger ticket, um, that will take longer to play out. And much of that, we, we expect, uh, would play out from a P&L perspective really more into next year and beyond. Got it. Okay. Okay. And then on um, on the quarterly cadence of new DOS ads this year, um, I think you mentioned mid-teens is still the, the expectations for total ads, but would you expect the, the quarterly cadence of those ads to once again be, be back-weighted, or do you expect that to normalize to kind of a, um, a pre-pandemic level? I think the answer is yes to both, actually, that, that pre-pandemic we did see – a back waiting, uh, you know, in, in each half of the year where the second quarter and the fourth quarter were typically, uh, more heavy, uh, in terms of the, the sales activity. And that aligns with something Brian mentioned earlier that most of our clients have an annual budget cycle, uh, that usually either, uh, typically aligns with the calendar year or more of a mid-year kind of fiscal year schedule. So we do expect that that will continue to be the case. Uh, weighted towards Q2 and Q4. Uh, but the pandemic has uh, thrown some curveballs, and so we're, we're continuing to just watch and monitor. The only thing I would add, thanks, Dan, is just the, uh, to Dan's point, uh, once those contracts sign and are, and are onboarded, there can be a, just a bit of variation um, and, and timing impact of uh, the time between post-contract signing and then, a, and, a, and then a go live date or an implementation date that can have an impact on the timing of that uh, recognition. You know, a couple months, a couple three. Months. Okay, okay. So if we assume kind of a ten forty ten forty quarterly cadence, um, would that be a good assumption? Yes. Okay. Thanks, guys. Thank you, Daniel. Thank you. Our next question comes from Iris Long with Bernberg. Hey, guys. Thanks for taking my question. Um, so I have first question on m and I'm wondering, Ben, if you can kind of elaborate on your m and comment, um, particularly on the pipeline that you're looking at. Maybe can you talk about what capabilities and what deal size are you looking at? And then I also kind of want to get your thoughts around the buy versus build decision. Yes, thank you for those questions, Iris. We continue to believe long-term that we are in a good position to be a consolidator in this space and believe that will be the case for many years to come. That's one of the reasons why we have been acquisitive and active uh, with three acquisitions over the last 15 months or so. 
And as we mentioned in our prepared remarks, that we see a, a meaningful, high-quality, robust pipeline of acquisition opportunities. We primarily are focused at the apps layer of our technology stack, as, as that is a layer which includes many companies, uh, a number of whom are startups, uh, that may struggle to make it long-term as independent companies, but may fit really well within our portfolio. And to your point, Iris, we go through a, a rigorous process of build, partner, buy analysis when we think about uh, the portfolio of offerings that we have uh, at the applications layer. We continue to focus on uh, specific areas where we want to be uh, the best in the world and differentiated, and we, we continue to think of acquisitions as a way of accelerating uh, the portfolio that we can offer, for example, in areas like population health, where there are always opportunities for us to make more robust uh, our offering, and we've used both research and development uh, investments as well as acquisitions in the past to strengthen our, our offering there in Pop Health, for example, and we believe there may be other opportunities like in areas like patient engagement, for example. We continue to also focus in other areas like the CFO value proposition, both on the revenue side and the cost side, where we want to strengthen what we can offer in terms of tangible ROI. A great recent example of, of strengthening that through acquisitions was Vitalware. We do believe there are other opportunities for us to strengthen the, val the value proposition to CFOs. And in terms of the size of offering, we want to always be in a position with our capital structure to be uh, very strong in terms of being able to go after great opportunities as they present themselves and fit with our strategic framework. And as such, we want to have a strong balance sheet. Today, as we mentioned in our prepared remarks, we, we sit with, with over $265 million of cash and cash equivalents on the balance sheet. Much of that can be utilized along with equity uh, in, in pursuing opportunities that can be small on the one end of the spectrum, like tuck-in acquisitions like Able Health, all the way up to, you know, a few hundred million in, in, uh, in total enterprise value and, and everything in between. And we want to make sure that we're always well positioned, uh, when we see a strategic opportunity in the, uh, acquisition space to have the balance sheet strength and the capability to, to act so that we can be that consolidator long term that we believe we, uh, we should be in order to fulfill our mission. Yeah, and just to add to the Iris to Dan's point around the build versus buy versus partner framework. So one additional area that we tend to lean a little bit heavier on in terms of the build opportunity is our, our platform layer, um, typically. And we, uh, you saw we did announce um, some additional capability um, related to machine learning, augmented intelligence, AI. Um, that's a horizontal capability. Um, called healthcare.ai built into to our platform layer that we're encouraged by. So just another framing in terms of where we're focused there on build versus buy. Okay, great. Um, actually, my second follow-up question is on the healthcare.ai solution. Um, I'm wondering like, how much time and resources did it take you guys to kind of build that solution and then maybe if you can kind of highlight what's special about it, um, if you compare it to some of the other solutions that's on the market. Yes, thank you for the question. So as Brian mentioned, we focus a good deal of our R&D investment at the data platform and the data content layer as key elements of differentiation that really get a client started 
on becoming more data informed. And the healthcare.ai is a great example at that data content layer where we have focused our investment to make sure that uh, that our clients have data organized in a way that uh, is not a black box. And, that, and you ask the question of how does this differentiate from uh, some of the other AI offerings in the marketplace. And that's an important distinguishing factor that we have found in, in work across the health uh, healthcare delivery spectrum uh, and ecosystem that when leaders, clinical or operational leaders, are, are leveraging a black box from an AI perspective where they can't understand or they don't have access to understand the, the assumptions behind the results that come out of the AI black box, they're much less likely to trust and to, to utilize that information. We purposefully build all of our solutions uh, around the AI offering at that data content layer as drillable so that you can see exactly what the assumptions were, what were the inputs, what was the weighting of those inputs in determining and, and developing a predictive model. And then we allow our clients, those leaders, to be able to adjust the assumptions that go into those predictive models. We want them to be the owners of uh, those predictive models and those machine learning capabilities because the adoption of, of those capabilities goes way up and because fundamentally we believe that AI is a support, not a replacement for the decision-making that needs to take, all, take place always uh, and be in the hands of clinical leaders who have that domain expertise and have the relationship with the patient, and AI provides a great support to that. And when AI is utilized in that way, adoption is much higher than what we've otherwise seen in the industry, uh, and we're really pleased to see that adoption high with our clients that are utilizing healthcare.ai uh, because they can, they can be in the driver's seat they're still the decision maker. They haven't been replaced, but rather they're now using this new capability to make even better decisions. Very helpful. Thank you. Thank, Thank you, you, Iris. Our last question comes from David Larson with BTIG. Your question, please. Hi. Um, can you talk a little bit about, um, you know, the pace of sales into hospitals as we get through the pandemic? Some of the publicly traded hospital uh, companies have reported, you know, um, ER volumes at 73% of baseline, so still well below baseline, and the inpatient volumes are actually a little bit light uh, as well in some cases. And I, I know you had a product that was helping hospitals identify where they could recover elective procedures, I guess maybe any comments around hospital volumes and, and COVID-related sales would be helpful. Thank you. Yes, thank you, David. Good to hear your voice. Um, so across our client base, uh, I would characterize our recent conversations as um, consistent in some ways with what you just shared, that many many of our health system clients are still experiencing impact from COVID-19, as we shared in our prepared remarks, that e that impact either uh, can, can manifest itself in terms of a shift in prioritization towards, you know, a focus on vaccination logistics, for example, and other COVID-19-specific care that they're delivering. A second place that it can manifest itself is as it relates to 
pre-pandemic volumes. And, and in some cases, we do see some of our clients that have not yet gotten back to pre-pandemic volumes. Others have, and I think many are approaching uh, uh, much more close to that pre-pandemic volume, but there's still an impact there in, in, in both of those categories where they've either shifted their focus and, and they're doing some pandemic-specific activity, or they still haven't quite gotten back to that pre-pandemic level. But we are seeing uh, that over time, most of our clients are getting closer and closer to those pre-pandemic levels. Okay, great. And then just a quick follow-up. All scripts obviously sold uh, EPSI to Strata. I would think that that could potentially open up an RCM opportunity for somebody, um, you know, like yourselves. Any, any thoughts on that and any other comments on, you know, the RCM space in general? I mean, VitalWare is great, but it's really charge master. There's a lot of other areas in RCM that, you know, could be, um, you know, valuable, I think. Yes. So RCM is a very large space, as you know, uh, David, and uh, we were focused with regards to the Vitalware acquisition on enabling a technology foothold. That would be, a, you know, a meaningful beachhead and, and a place where we can build around that charge master capabilities, knowing that that was, you know, a small subsegment of a very broad space. We've been pleased with that foothold and that, and that beachhead opportunity that Vitalware provides us. Likewise, our activity-based costing solution, you know, Chorus, is another important technology foothold uh, that does enable us to, to uh, build around that in the, the space of what is most important to a CFO. And as mentioned earlier, that CFO value proposition continues to be an area of prioritized focus for us where both in our R&D investments as well as in our, uh, in our potential acquisition-related activities will continue to be focused uh, very much on, on the technology that can enable more and more uh, measurable improvement in this space and in specific sub-segments where we feel that we can be differentiated. As you know, there are many players in the broad RCM space we want to make sure that the specific subsegments that we go after, that we focus on, are subsegments that play to our natural strengths around organizing data from many different sources uh, and then analyzing that data and, and using technology, the apps layer, that can really automate and, and measurably improve. So we'll continue with that lens uh, as we think about our position within that broad space. Great. Thanks very much. Thank you. Thank you. And I'm going to end the Q&A right now. There's no questions in the queue and pass the call to Dan Burton for final remarks. Thank you, Carmen. And thank you to all those who have dialed in uh, for this report. We appreciate your interest in our company and we look forward to staying in touch in the months ahead. Thank you, ladies and gentlemen. This concludes today's conference call. Thank you for your participation and you may now disconnect.